For KLSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics. Along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and sitting in for Ryan Kiesel is Democratic State Representative Forrest Bennett joining me over Zoom video conference. The state is opening COVID-19 vaccinations to every Oklahoman over the age of 16. Starting Monday, we're moving into phase four. This comes a little more than a year after the first case of the coronaviruses were discovered in the state and a year which saw the deaths of more than 7,700 Oklahomans. Neva, what are your thoughts on the state opening vaccinations to everyone? Well, it continues to be great news for all Oklahomans. And I think as we continue to look at the statistics, when we see that 27% of the state's population has been vaccinated, when we look at the numbers among 65 and older Oklahomans, the fact that 70% of those have received at least one shot and 50% or more have received two shots. I mean, those are great numbers. And I think the fact that we now have this wide open opportunity with um, about 25 doses, 25,000 doses a day uh, being uh, administered, uh, it speaks, you know, I mean, I think it speaks volumes to Oklahomans that we have a very good process in place. It's working. And I think uh, we now are at a place where, uh, as the health officials have said earlier this week, it's a, it's time to get vaccinated and folks have an opportunity to do that and do it uh, with relative ease, particularly when we still see all of these stories around the country with um, not as bright a prospect in terms of availability and just the process to get vaccinated itself. Representative Bennett. Yeah, I mean, it's great news. And I think we owe a lot of that to um, our tribal partners, mm -hmm. for sure. Uh, and um, and just the the uh, the people of Oklahoma for for heeding heeding advice and going and getting that vaccine and um, you know we've heard over and over again that the best vaccine is the one you can get tomorrow and I think that a lot of people have taken that to heart. My wife, um, I did mine through the state health department, so it was just one on one me and me and somebody at the health department downtown. My wife did the Emmy Labs thing, and so we kind of have the we, we represent this, the spectrum of of um, how shots are being administered, but we were just incredibly impressed by the Emmy Labs uh, model. And I think that, you know, th it's terrible that it was born out of all of this, but I think it's gonna be great to see how these, um, these innovations serve us in the future. Um, but I do wanna caution people, you know, that there seem to be, there's an effort at the, at the Oklahoma City city level, and, and of course comments at, at the state level about relaxing things now. Um, we, are still in a, we are still in a race between getting everybody vaccinated and these new variants. And um, now is not the time to, uh, I, don't, I don't think now is the time to celebrate uh, and, 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 you know, declare um, mission accomplished, you know? And I think that is an important point for us in terms of, I mean, we we saw the great um, uh, push and great response among older Oklahomans uh, wanting to get the vaccination. Now that it's open to everyone, as, as uh, Michael said, over 16, uh, it will be interesting to see if younger Oklahomans, uh, young adults, uh, take advantage of this and take it as seriously as some of uh, some of their parents and grandparents have uh, in some cases, because I think that is going to be the real challenge. If, if we only have a certain, if, if there's 27 percent of the population, if we in short order kind of hit a plateau and we don't continue to vaccinate when we 
have the availability when we have 170,000 doses coming in weekly still, uh, it will uh, it, it certainly won't bode well overall for the state long term. So I think that isn't I think that is an important consideration is that that there continues to be a focus and there continues to be um, the education process out there statewide uh, as more and more people as all. Uh, adult Oklahomans basically uh, are um, uh, open to have the vaccination if they choose to. Well, Neil, my, my understanding of this program is that we're supposed to disagree about stuff, but you and I. Assume- <laughs> <laughs> well, on the first one, we're on the, on the first one. I guess we will. There you go. <laughs> so, a deadline for Epic Virtual Charter School to reimburse the state more than eleven million dollars passes with no payment. The deadline was set by the State Board of Education after an investigative audit identified chronically excessive administrative overhead costs and inaccurate accounting. Epic says it disagrees with the audit and the amount of taxpayer dollars it owes back to the state. Representative Bennett, what should the board do now that the deadline has passed? I, I think that um, I think Epic is is calling the, the BOE's bluff, and I'd like to see what the what the state uh, does. I, um, I mean, even Epic has acknowledged that they, that their own accounting uh, says that they that they owe a, a much smaller number, but that they owe something. And so, you know, that that admission I think uh, is gonna is gonna fuel the State Department and, and proponents of, of public ed and um, opponents of of Epic to um, to chase this. And and quite frankly, you know, I as a state legislator uh, who gets a lot of uh, gaff from from constituents about how we appropriate money. I think um, I'd love to see us get that money back. But uh, I think you're probably going to end up seeing this in court. Neva. And I, I agree on the on the fact that litigation is very likely. I mean, we have an impasse here. I mean, in October, when the State Board of Education voted unanimously uh, to uh, to demand back taxpayer dollars from epic uh the price tag being 11.2 million uh and then this week when their deadline came and went no money no uh, certainly uh everything points to the fact that uh, they dispute uh, the math on this they dispute uh, much of what was in the auditor and inspectors uh, uh forensic audit findings and uh this ultimately as as we can see it begin to play out they, for every issue that uh, comes forward, they have a counter a point to that. And their attorneys certainly are, um, you know, beginning, uh, even from what has been in in the uh, public eye so far, they're beginning to build their case that whatever point was made in the audit, they have an explanation or they dispute the, uh, the figures or uh, some of the other findings. So I think this is going to be a protracted uh, battle. And I think we talked about that even last fall, that this was something that that, that would go on for a long time, uh, even with respect to whether legislation uh, ever comes into play in terms of what they do uh, with respect to uh, virtual charter schools or other things, whether it's related to the aftermath or things that, uh, that have uh, come out in the discussions relative to this whole episode with, uh, uh, with this particular Epic Charter Schools case. Um, I think that I think that this will be something that we'll probably be, probably be talking about for quite some time. Attorney General Mike Hunter appoints a special counsel to investigate the Pardon and Parole Board. The AG's office says former U.S. Attorney Brian Quester is 
promising to bring answers to questions surrounding the board in an effort to restore public confidence in its operations. Neva, what will he be investigating? Well, I think uh, I think he will uh, basically be looking at uh, some of the some of the things that have been brought to light so far. Many complaints that the attorney general says his office continues to receive um, among those that have been complaining, as we've talked about in the past. Uh, the uh, Oklahoma County District Attorney David Prater has uh, uh, filed a lawsuit uh, uh, earlier this month, basically asking a judge to block the governor from granting any uh, further commutations or parole requests uh, until until the matter was resolved and and basically saying that there are improprieties on the the parole board so there there are a lot of questions and I think this special counsel certainly given his resume and background seems like an ideal person if you're going to bring someone in from the outside that's going to interface with the OSBI going to interface with uh, the uh, senior deputy attorney general over the uh, multi-county grand jury in the attorney general's office. I mean, all of these different players, then they'll begin to sort through this information and see, uh, see what happens. And as the, uh, as the attorney general says, uh, his, his uh, point is that he wants to uh, have these accusations looked at and then uh, come up with a fair and reasonable conclusion uh, after all is said and done. Representative Bennett. Yeah. I, um, you know, from a from a transparency and, and um, fairness perspective, I I can appreciate uh, having somebody come in. Um, the perception of what might be going on uh, and, and people having limited amounts of information about uh, pardon parole issues um, and knowing at the same time that there's the, the most the most uh, visible uh, thing regarding the pardon parole board right now is the discussion around Julius Jones um, and uh, the fact that David Prater and others. Uh, who were involved in that case um, have made statements. Uh, to me, um, my focus being on on that um, as as sort of the center point of this issue, it it, it upsets me and bothers me that um, that there's that there's all this this talk happening. And, and I'm not necessarily saying that that having um, a, a third party observer essentially come in and and take care of this isn't the right thing to do. But uh, the um, just the perception around around the pardon pro board right now at at the same time as they're taking up this very uh, controversial case is um, it's unfortunate to me because I think it, it probably detracts from, from the facts of that case and, and the public discussion around it. So um, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Uh, I've been, every time I get excited about something that the AG does, he turns around and does something that really kind of bothers me. So um, I guess he's probably the, the perfect politician because he's making everybody mad. Uh, the AG was against uh, Julius Jones. Uh, uh, they're, they're investigating and, and going in uh, through with possible commutation. And so was uh, the Oklahoma County District Attorney, David Prater. Is, is there worries, Neva, that this, this looks like a political ploy? I, I don't I don't think so. And not at, at this point. I mean, the whole effort really is bottom line to restore public confidence in the pardon and parole board where there have been a lot of questions that have uh, surfaced and 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 really demand a fair uh, a fair assessment and and resolution on and i think we're not talking about just one case either i mean the other case that's been uh, in the in spotlighted in this whole conversation is is the one with Lawrence paul anderson and another inmate that were um uh, had commuted uh sentences and anderson uh three weeks after being released from prison uh 
fatally stabbed three people in Chickasha. Uh, and the, um, I mean, I think the look at some of these uh, commutations in that particular instance, it was a three, three to one vote, I believe, last year. But several years before, a couple of years before, uh, the uh, uh, the records show that the Pardon and Parole Board had rejected the commutation request. So, so there's there's a lot of things flying around, and I think when you bring in a uh, you bring in special counsel with a mission to just look at all of the information, sort through it, talk to all of the appropriate parties, and uh, come up with uh, come up with some uh, uh, fair and and conclusions that uh, are substantiated. In fact, I think that's what the public. Uh, certainly will welcome. And I think even lawmakers at the end of the day will welcome uh, the uh, the opportunity to have the air cleared in this matter. State Senator Shane Jett is coming under fire for hiring his cousin to work as his legislative assistant. While she had been employed by his office for months, the Shawnee Republican fired her after getting questioned by the Oklahoman. Representative Bennett, did Senator Jett break the law here? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a, a perception of it. And what's interesting to me is that this isn't uh, Senator Jett's first foray uh, at the Capitol. He was a state House member for a long time before he uh, ran for Congress and um, in the 5th District, I think. Is that right? But he should know better. I mean, the bottom line is that he should know better and that there's a there's a great uh, pool of folks out here uh, that um, did, that'll do a great job for for us. So, um I thought that was kind of kind of a curious deal and an unforced error on his part. Neva. Well, I agree. I think uh, the fact that, that the timing certainly kind of raises eyebrows that uh, that that uh, this came after a question by by an Oklahoman reporter uh, that uh, asking the question of whether or not uh, he and his uh, administrative assistant were related when in fact they they are. And he admitted that. Uh, but the law is the law. So, I mean, in these sorts of matters, it's just it needs to be clear here's what the law is and everyone needs to abide by it and and move forward so i would i would say that uh, in this instance uh, the point that uh, the representative bennett makes is is a good one i mean uh, shane jett was in the house before he mm-hmm. uh, ran for uh, congress came back and successfully won a won a senate seat uh, last last fall um so it, it, it needs to be sorted out and needs to be uh, you know put to bed very quickly but that's why we do have nepotism laws on the books that's why it is very specific that it is illegal for uh, state and local elected and appointed officials for judges for members of the executive branch to uh, use public funds to uh, appoint uh, to have people uh, on the payroll which is the public uh, taxpayer dollars that are that are funding these positions at the capitol and so uh, everyone needs to play by the same uh, rules and and understand what the laws are and um, and move forward. Representative Bennett, I know it's not your chamber, but has there been any talk about any kind of repercussions against Senator Jett? You know, um, I'm not sure if this is Neva's experience, but most of the time on the House side, I don't know what it's like on the Senate side, but I <laughs> tend to forget that they exist over there half the time. And the other time it's because they've messed up something or killed one of our bills or something like that. So quite frankly, we've, we've been a little distracted on our end uh, dealing with stuff, but uh, and and I, I think that, you know, that story and then also the uh, the epic story seem to be kind of floating under the radar for a lot of folks here um, because there's so much catch up do it that, we're, that we're doing uh, because of the time lost from COVID last uh, week. But 
Um, but there have been similar instances throughout the years uh, in both chambers. And um, I think probably there are a lot of legislators that are like, well, I try not to break the law myself, but I, you know, that everything's always up to interpretation. So I'm not going to speak out too much because I don't, I don't want the, the uh, magnifying glass on me. Um, but I, I do, um, if it was just an error of judgment or something for the Senator, I, I, I suppose uh, I have some sympathy there, but, but, you know, he's been around and, and should know better. And I, and I think that he learned that lesson pretty quickly. I think the other point to be made is that for uh, all elected officials, I think it is important as people come into office uh, that uh, that the orientation process, this may be a place where uh, these reminders of what the laws are, uh, what is appropriate, what is what is not uh, either legal or appropriate. Uh, is is an important matter for I think everyone to take under advisement and and to kind of have that as a takeaway moving forward is to make sure that folks do understand and sometimes uh, there's there's a lot of a lot of things thrown out uh, uh, kind of on the table uh, when people uh, come into elective office at any level and I think uh, this is one instance where it's a reminder to everyone uh, that uh, that there are that there are rules there are laws and uh, that they are to be taken seriously and the more that we can uh, ensure through processes that uh, that that information is uh, clearly understood by people in elective office and appointed office, I think that will be very important. You know, the orientation idea is really good um, because I was I was just thinking about when I first got elected. I was 26 or 27, and I'd never had somebody work for me before. There was not a whole lot of. Um, discussion about how to how to hire in LA. And I got really lucky because uh, an LA who has been here for 35 years um, was, was has had just her her member had just turned out. And so I have been blessed with getting to uh, work with her. Her name is Connie Riley, and she's just amazing. And and has allowed me to make it look like I knew how to do this job from day one with <laughs> reality, I'm just still learning. Um, but but to, to that point, it really is, I don't know that the general public knows this so much, you know, um, we don't, we're, we're handed a lot of information when we get elected and there are some orientation processes, but by and large, you know, this job is what you make of it. And, um, and uh, people, we, we kind of have to navigate this. It, it, uh, when you're trying to get your office set up after you've gotten elected, you know, you think that November to, to February is a, is a, a, a good period of time, but really um, trying to get all that together is, um, is difficult. So um, I, I tend to have sympathy with, with this kind of thing though. Hiring a hiring cousin, you think? I think most people would would know. You know that that's that's uh, the nepotism is pretty clearly there. But um, but it is a, it is a fascinating process, and I think that's one of those things that that a lot of folks don't don't think about. The 2021 legislative session is nearly half over. A major deadline last week resulted in 70 percent of pre-filed bills failing to make it out of their chambers of origin. This comes to more than 2,100 pieces of legislation. Neva, were there any measures you were disappointed to see not advance? Uh, in, in the overall takeaway, I would say no. I mean, I think I think where we are right now is, uh, as you say, I mean, we're kind of at the midpoint. We've seen a lot of a lot of bills introduced, uh, 3,000 plus or whatever it was, and uh, basically. 2000 of those uh, have uh, gone, you know, gone by the board. So mm -hmm. we're now down to where the rubber meets the road. But it's the it's the tough work for uh, the, um, the representatives and senators to uh, continue to to work through. And I think in this year, we probably had maybe and 
and uh, Representative Bennett may have a little different take, but it seems like there was maybe a slightly larger number of bills filed uh, than than normal. But it's always it's always uh, by degrees somewhere in that uh, three thousand range, plus or minus. But at the end of all of this, I mean, what we have is we're shifting from from just what I guess the kind of the general landscape of bills and we're shifting to the appropriations time now where we haven't even begun to see those bills Mm -hmm. roll out and we will see that process start. And that will be, that will be where, you know, that the uh, kind of, again, rubber meets the road in terms of the, of the process of the seeing how, how the uh, budget and the numbers are going to, uh, are going to really kind of be carved carved through and what the result's going to be. And at the end of all of this, we'll see 150 or 200 uh, bills passed into law, probably in addition to the appropriations bills on top of that. And, and the long and the short of it is, from my standpoint, looking at it right now from the outside, it looks like uh, that we're not going to see... Uh, um, I mean, we're not going to see anything out of the norm. I think we'll still see the budget uh, kind of budget struggling back and forth, even though the dollars are there more than perhaps in previous sessions. There still is the question of, you know, how it will be spent, how much will not be spent. And those are where the battles, I think, really ensue, even between both chambers, as well as uh, mm-hmm. with the governor weighing in at some point. And certainly many of the bills were held over, or not held over, but redone because rewritten from last year when the COVID-19 kind of struck down the session. Uh, Representative Bennett, same thing to you. Did, were there any bills that you're kind of disappointed did not get through? Plenty. Yeah. But I think, you know, that's, um, I'm a Democrat <laughs> in a, in a, super red legislature it's frustrating to see what prior what priorities were made you know um there's a there's a precious few who get to choose which bills are scheduled for hearings in committee and and scheduled for, for committee uh or for for hearings on the floor we have 40 or so uh committees uh, on the house side so um that's a lot of different people who for various different reasons could choose not to hear bills there were very interesting bill assignments bills having nothing to do with criminal justice reform for example that were assigned to business committee or vice versa and um we've heard multiple gun bills and multiple abortion bills but 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 very little um on covid relief for uh for folks and so um you know in a, in a year like this when we are playing catch up and that's that that's certainly a big part of it um you would think we would be prioritizing the things that would do the most good for the most number of people. That's my view of how how uh, how we should um, how we should view our role as as government, and that doesn't seem to be the case. Um, so yes, for me, I mean, yesterday, um, my colleague from from Tulsa, uh, Monroe Nichols, uh, ha- had a press conference about some of the police reform bills that, that didn't get a hearing. Uh, I had some bills that would have that would have directly um, helped folks who had been put in difficult situations as a result of COVID. And plenty of us did. Uh, so to see the to see the bills that did get a hearing and the ones that that passed through, and we've we've already yesterday we had a, the Senate version of the bill um, that makes it harder for uh, requires you to put a fiscal impact on um, a state question if you're in an initiative petition, and then this one requires uh, the initiative petition folks to put the the source of of funding for it. I mean, essentially making making the, the general population do our job for us when it comes to these state questions. So, you know, it's just the things that we're prioritizing is, and the message that we're sending out there is not one that I think uh, a lot of Oklahomans are, are going to be too pleased about, but um, we're halfway through and there's always magic ways to get, to get the right kind of legislation passed if there's a will. So hopefully, hopefully there'll be a will to do some stuff that'll help people. 
And Neva and Representative Bennett's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.